There's an exceptional anointing and grace of the Spirit on the worship tonight, and that's not by accident. That's not for no reason. It's because as a community, we're in a time of consecration, preparing our hearts for communion. But it's a message to us, isn't it? That when we want to feel more of God, we need to, give, we need to become more consecrated. We need to become more serious. Something changes in our minds, our hearts, and that's what releases the grace that we're feeling here tonight. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, and we thank God for it. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. When Brother Zafrir was speaking, I couldn't help feeling that while Isaiah encountered the glory of God, and while it was God's destined plan that he would be one of the greatest prophets that ever lived, nonetheless, he was not a vessel that could bear the weight and the glory of God's anointing until his lips had been touched with the Lord's coal. Amen. Oftentimes, I think that we confuse the power of God with the freedom that He has really given us. As those made in His image, we would like to think that if something is missing in our life, whether it be anointing, the power of the Holy Spirit, the love of God, we would like to blame God in many instances. And we can all recognize and agree that the lack is a lack of God. It's a lack of the power that He has made available to us. But the blame not, lies not on God's doorstep, but on ours. Something has to happen to us to turn this potential power into realized power. Something has to happen to our minds, to our mouths, to our hearts. A coal has to touch us. And if that happens, then the available power becomes the realized power. And that's why I started off by just giving honor and recognition that God hasn't changed. That's not why we're feeling an exceptional move of His Spirit tonight. What has changed is human beings. They have decided to give Him the space and the honor and the obedience that He deserves. And in them making that choice, suddenly more grace is being felt. People are coming to new places. New places of power. New places of anointing. New places in God. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We know that not every vessel is suitable for the glory of God. Remember, Jesus prevented them from indiscriminately sharing even the truth. Do not cast your pearls before swine, he said, nor give that which is holy unto dogs. Amen. It is not fit 
to take the children's bread, in another place he said, and give it to dogs. In these two parabolic statements, he's not speaking of dogs or pigs. He's speaking of human beings whose attitude toward the things of God has become so debased, so commonplace, so that they no longer recognize it for the treasure that it is, but they regard it as a pig would regard it. They regard it as a dog would regard it. That is to say, they don't regard it at all. They don't even notice it. That's a scary thing, isn't it? To think that it would be possible for us to sit in the presence of God where the answers were given, but we heard not a word. Where the grace was flowing, but no change came in our lives. Where the power was real, but we felt nothing. And it begs the question, if that is the case, or to whatever extent that is the case, what are we supposed to do about it? Are we supposed to lean back and say, I, I just want a more powerful encounter with God. God, you just need to be more powerful. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. It is incumbent upon us to get what we need from God. And I'm not just talking about this meeting. I'm talking about in our life. It is incumbent upon us to get what we need from God. It is incumbent upon Bartimaeus, blind as he may be, to lift his voice all the louder and cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. It is incumbent upon the disciples to lift their voice from the boat that is being bounced across the stormy waves that night and say, if it be you, Bid me come on the water. Amen. It is incumbent upon the disciples to detain him, as it says they did on the road to Emmaus. To detain God. To detain him. To say, no. My soul hasn't received all it needs from this moment, from this prayer, from this song, from this worship, even though the crowd tells me to be silent, I have got to get more out of this brush with God. It's not over. My need is not met. And if you're that kind of person, God is going to be an increasing power in your life. I read this passage recently, and those who believe in double predestination, they will love this passage, even though they completely misunderstand it. I read this passage in Romans 9. He says to them, So then he has mercy on whom he has mercy. 
and he hardens whom he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he find fault? If you want to put a tag on what my burden is tonight, that's it right there. Why does he find fault? You will say to me then, why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? So the people who are wrong ask the question, who can resist his will? The people who are incorrect in this equation say, why does he find fault for who can resist his will? On the contrary, who are you? So Paul turns it around and asks them a question. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will he? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel? One for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. And she who was not beloved, I will call her beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there in that place they shall be called sons of the living God. Amen. So I told you the predestinationalists love this scripture. Because they say, along with the foolish man in Paul's equation, who can find fault with God? They have a certain complacency because God is the potter, we are the clay. Do you agree with that? God is the potter, we are the clay, and if he decides to make a vessel for, for dishonorable use, then it's his hands that made it. And if he decides to make a vessel for honorable use, praise God, it's his hands that made it. But don't blame me for the way I was shaped. This is who I am. Have you ever heard somebody say, that's not who I am. I'm just not like that. I'm not one of those people. Oh, you're one of the vessels of dishonor. I understand. That's what they're really saying. And in that statement is a little tacit blame, isn't it? It's a little tacit excusing of themselves from culpability. That's, that's just who I am. And the predestinationists love it. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. Well, how were you made? Were you made for honorable use or dishonorable use? When God was spinning you on the wheel of his purpose up there in heaven, 
And what's he going to be like? You know what? Let's use him for dishonorable use. Put them over there. What about her? Yeah, I think we can use her for honor. Is that how it works? It's a little bit scary, isn't it? Because we are made by God. We are clay in a sense. And it is a little scary when we start talking about people made for this kind of use and people made for that kind of use. But what the ignorant don't tell you is that we're all only good for dishonorable use. Amen? And we are all his workmanship, so in some sense you can blame that on God, I suppose. But if there's anybody who finds an honorable use in the kingdom of God, it is because they were remade. Remade in your native state, in your original Adamic condition, you're you're only for dishonorable use. But look at this, what he says here in 2 Timothy. Same Paul, the same truth. Here he is talking about vessels again, right? He says, Thank you, Jesus. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now look at this. While you're asking yourself, how was I made? Was I made as one of those rejects that didn't quite make the cut and so got designated for dishonorable use? Thank you, Jesus. Well, you don't know yet, do you? Because it's you who makes the decision. Nevertheless, the firm foundation. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but there are also vessels of wood and earthenware and some to honor and some to dishonor. So Paul, you have to agree, is bringing the same exact thought, the same exact words, the same exact concept that he was introducing there in Romans. He's bringing it here, isn't he? And he's given us two kinds. Remember, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about those believers whose lives are built out of wood, hay, and stubble versus those who are built out of gold, silver, precious stones. Amen? One is burn in the fire. So when he invokes the same imagery in this passage, and he says, now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. We know what he's talking about, don't we? But that's not where he ends. If he ended there, we could all just sit back and say, well, I was made as a wooden vessel. She's golden, I tell you. But I'm wooden. And I just, I can't change the way I was made. Isn't that what he says in Isaiah? Can an Ethiopian change his color of his skin? Can a leopard change his stripes? Can a man change himself? No, we can't change. This is who we are. It's the way we were born. 
He was born to be proud and he was born to be ambitious and he was born to be a murderer. And this is just the way we're born. Get used to it. We're clay. God's a potter. We're wood. They're gold. Everyone knows that's just how it is. But that's not where he stops. He says, in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware. What he's saying is there's a place for you in the economy of God, you wood and earthenware vessels. You who don't have your faith tried and refined like gold in the fire, who are intent on keeping your faith on the wood and earthenware level, there's a place for you. It's a place of dishonor. But there's a place for you. It's a place that demonstrates what is not God's will, but there's a place in the economy of God's purpose. Therefore, if anyone, the wood, the earthenware, the failure, the proud, the dirty, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness. Is this a passive attitude that he's portraying here? You've got to do something. You've got to flee the things that would turn you into that vessel of dishonor. Flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness. Pursue faith and love and peace with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Everybody's included. Amen. And they might come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to his will. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. If anyone cleanses himself. So there are vessels. There are vessels that encounter the presence and power of God. But like Isaiah, they say, I can't do that. I am unclean. I am wood. I am earthenware. I am a vessel of dishonor. And some of them expose themselves to the dealings of God. Some of them throw themselves into the mercy and the hands of God. Some of them let the coal of God's truth burn their mouth. And others lean back against the wall and say, this is the way I was made. You're gold and you're silver. 
You're precious stones, me, I'm just wood and clunky old clay. Amen. I'm a waste bucket. Amen. I'm a trash can. I'm the chicken bucket. That's all I know how to do is catch all the bad stuff in the body. Become a repository for all the accusations in the body. That's who I am. I'm cynical by nature. You better change that about yourself. If you're waiting on God to get that chicken scrap garbage out of you, you're going to wait forever. And you're only going to have one purpose in his economy as a warning and a stench for others to avoid. What you need to say is, God, how do I do this cleansing of myself? How do I sanctify myself? I want your power to be real in my life. I want your love to be a power in my soul. What do I do, Jesus? Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. I've had occasion, more times than I can count, to be in the hospital with somebody when they're about to get a prescription necessary for their condition. Maybe this prescription is a powerful chemical to destroy cancer. Maybe this prescription is a powerful antibiotic to prevent them from succumbing to infection. Amen? Maybe this prescription is any number of things, but it's presumed necessary in my analogy here, okay? And what gets me is that in our modern medical system that is so advanced and better than all others, I think it's 150,000 accidental deaths a year happen at the hands of doctors and hospital technicians. Um, But that aside, that's not my point. They know that they've got a problem, so they go out of their way to double check to make sure they get it right. And my dad, when he had his operation this last time, the lady came in with some sort of potion to dish out, and she said, what is your name? And he said, Blair Adams. And she said, no, really, what's your name? And he said, Blair Adams. She said, what's your date of birth? He said, January uh, 5th, 1944. She went, oh my, I've got, so you're not Mr. James Adams? He was another patient on the same floor. And if they hadn't had this double-check system, she would have given my dad something that could have killed him in the operation that he was about to undergo, which Mr. James Adams was not about to undergo. Makes your heart pound, doesn't it? At least it did ours. (laughs) They laughed it off, and it was great. So my point is, aren't you glad they double-check? They come in and they ask you, what's your name? You give your name. Your date of birth. And they don't, they'll do this every time they give you the medicine. 
You may be sitting in the, in the oncology place for hours at a time, and they've seen you every, every three weeks for months, and they've, you've been there already for several hours, and they've given you several doses, but when they're going to give you the big doozy, two nurses have to come in and stand there while they ask you again to tell us what is your name, what is your date of birth, They want to make sure that there are two witnesses that you are the one to whom this blessing goes. Are you with me? And I started thinking about it. What what it is in the body is there are people who hear that God has a solution for them, has an answer for them, has a cure for them, and they get all excited, but they never hear their name called. They never hear themselves described when God is about to give that answer, that cure, that blessing. He describes the person next to him. He describes the person down the hall. He describes all kinds of people, but it never describes them. And so they sit there and they say, I wonder when he's going to help me. I wonder when my life is going to change. The difference and where the analogy breaks down is you can become the person God keeps describing when he hands out his help. You can change your address in the spirit. You can change your identity in the spirit. You can change to become the person that that blessing is destined for. You can change to become the vessel that is made to contain glorious things, honorable things. And if you sit back in your complacency, you don't recognize how much really depends on you. You're going to live Hearing God call other people's names, but never tasting and seeing yourself that the Lord is good. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on high in a holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For my, my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares Yahweh. But on this one will I look to him who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Why does God never look my way? 
Because he has defined a certain kind of person, a certain kind of attitude, and he says, this is the only kind of person I am going to help. And it is up to you to transform yourself to become that person, to fit that definition. And if you can succeed at that, he's going to look on you. He's going to be near you. And every blessing in his hand is going to flow right into your life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We believe you, Jesus. You say, God, I'm not brokenhearted, but please be near to me. And he says, no. No. Psalms, one, Psalms 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And the Apostle James says, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud. That means he pushes them away. He pushes them away. He resists them. You feel like you're coming close to a blessing and all of a sudden you get this pushback? Well, it's very simple what you've got to do. He says God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And we say, ain't that sad? I wish I was humble. But that's not where James stops. He says, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Lament and mourn. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. You say, if I was humble, I'd probably be crying right now. But that's just not me. But James commands you to be that. He says you need to cry. You need to mourn. You need to feel the sorrow, the godly sorrow that leads to repentance for who and what you've been. And if you can't get to that place of brokenness, then don't blame God for being so distant. Psalms 138 and 6. The Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly. But the haughty he knows from a distance. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. In the previous chapter, he said. Now he says, the haughty he knows from a distance. Are you somebody in the body that feels distant from the love of Jesus? Are you somebody in the body who encounters the presence of God, but it never comes inside? Are you somebody you want to feel the nearness of God that the psalmist said is our good? Amen. You want to be good. You want to be a good boy. You want to overcome. But you, you don't have anything good in you. 
In our flesh there is no good thing. It's the nearness of God that is our good. Amen? Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Next time you read the Beatitudes, imagine that he's not talking about six different groups of people. Imagine that he's talking about one group and describing six different attributes that are all essential to receive the blessings he describes. Luke 18, but the tax collector standing some distance away was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. It strikes me that he was also unwilling to remain at a distance. It also strikes me that he must have known the word of God, that the arrogant are those who feel distant from God. He was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted and justified before God. One of only two times Jesus uses the word justified in all of his ministry. And he said to them, whoever receives the child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this one is the greatest. Everyone, Luke 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We've got to be exalted, brothers and sisters. We can't stay in the lowly place of our weakness of our sin. We got to get out of here. We got to find some lift, some transcendence to the, this death bound existence. Amen. But either you're going to achieve it through the flesh or you're going to abase the flesh. You're going to fall on the rock and be broken. And Jesus is going to lift you up. Peter, you younger men, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Amen. So rather than blame God, let's ask ourselves, have I fit the description of the man whom the Lord will bless. Have I matched the description of the man whom the Lord will love? Have I altered and adapted and changed and been changed, transformed by the renewing of my carnal mind until I fit the description of the man whom the Lord will bless? Remember the story of, of Haman? 
so shall it be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Boy, did he get creative when he thought it was about him. Bless his heart, he didn't fit the bill. Mordecai did. Amen. And that's what we are. We're just like him. We don't fit the bill. We don't fit the description. When the physician of our soul stands at our need, at the side of our need, and begins to read off, this is the person who can overcome their fear. And there's grace in the room. There's power in his hand. There's an answer that's already arrived. We just can't make ourselves fit that description. We want to say, here I am, God. Fixed, done, take me or leave me as I am. And he says, I'm not going to cast my pearls before swine or give that which is holy unto dogs. I'm not going to pour the new wine of my Holy Spirit into the chicken bucket. Does anybody want to cleanse themselves from all their judgments, all their criticism, all their pride? that has made them get the pushback from God instead of the grace from God? If you could do that, no good thing would he withhold from those who put their trust in him. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I want to match the description. God, whatever it is in me, I want to change it. I can't lift myself up, but I can sure get low. I can sure humble this flesh. I can sure become less. I'm too weak to become more, but I can become less, so much less, so that he could become greater still. Don't blame God. Don't blame God. Blame yourself. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus I want to worship as the worshiper whom Yahweh will bless I want to worship as the worshiper whom the Father is seeking I want to pray as the one whom the Lord will answer I want to seek him with all my heart and be the one who will find him. I want to respond like Bartimaeus and apprehend the Lord who would have passed me by. I want to call out and be the one who hears him say, come to me on the water. I want to become one of those people. I don't want him to take me as I am. I want him to insist that I change from a dog into a child of God. From a stubborn, arrogant punk into a child of God. Thank you, Jesus, from a vessel of dishonor to a vessel of honor and glory. Fill me, Jesus. Fill me with your honor. Fill me with your glory. 
put your new wine into this new perspective. I'm receiving it right now as you speak. I'm changing the way I respond. I'm altering the way I think. I'm humbling myself right now. Pour the new wine. It's not the old wine skin anymore. I've got a new attitude toward you, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. I'm sanctifying myself of all that garbage.